Was I the only one whose favorite moment in that video was when five-year-old Beatrice said that art is home? I just thought, what has she been immersing herself in, you know, a 19th century French philosophers or something? Like, yeah, you know. I, I do think, though, that video, it kind of reminds me of that iconic classic song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And that song, of course, is written and it was produced and put out in 1943, uh, recorded originally by Bing Crosby, written for uh, the troops serving overseas uh, who were on foreign soil, serving in harm's way right during Christmas time. And it kind of taps into that feeling, that sense, that longing that they must have felt in that time for home. And it's interesting, you know, um, I was reading this week that while the U.S. military magazine Yank said that, quote, that song accomplished more for military morale than anyone else in the era, I also read that the BBC actually banned that song for British soldiers to listen to because it was feared that it would actually create a, a sense of homesickness and would actually uh, kill their morale. And so uh, the song also was um, uh, uh, requested by Frank Borman and Jim Lovell in December 1965 while on Jiminy 7. They requested I'll Be Home for Christmas be played for them by the NASA ground crew. So whether you were in space or in harm's way, or for many of us, it's just been one of these iconic, you know, Christmas songs. And it's been sung, I I think, you know, by so many different artists, by, you know, Bing Crosby to B.B. King to Bob Dylan uh, to Bette Midler uh, to uh, John Stether's favorite artist, Justin Bieber. And um, right, John? Loves Justin Bieber. But I think one of the reasons for its enduring, you know, status of of one of our Christmas favorites is because this song, more than almost any other song, kind of taps into that deep longing in our hearts for home. I mean, all of us has a gravitational pull towards home. It's one of the questions we ask one another at this time of year, are you going home for Christmas? Or maybe you ask another person, are your kids coming home for Christmas. And of course, we have our sayings, home, sweet home, and home is where the heart is. But we all long for a place where we belong, where we are at home with ourselves and with each other. We we long to be in that place where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. You know, we, we, we do have this deep, deep longing for home. And most of us you know, throughout most of the year, this longing for home lies dormant, and it just waits for, you know, chestnuts roasting on the open fire or the scent of pine trees or peppermint bark or something like that to call forth these, these, these latent desires into our awareness so that we recognize within ourselves this deep longing for home. Now, of course, for some of you, going home is something you look forward to, and it's a rich time. I know for our family, uh, my two older daughters will be home with us for Christmas. They're normally, or they've been at college. And, and, and I'm just looking forward to that. I've already got one of them home, looking forward to the other one being home. But I think for, for others among us, home can be a complicated thing, can it? And some of you come from very dysfunctional environments. And actually, this season, it actually does evoke a longing for home But for you, it is an unmet longing. You feel like you've never known that place where you belong, 
where you, feel un, where you feel absolutely comfortable and at home with yourself and with those around you, and, and, and you just feel this ache for home. Well, today what I want to do is I want to bring this latent, this kind of under-the-surface longing for home into some theological reflection. And I want to bring this longing for home into dialogue with one of the great passages about homecoming in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 35. We heard it read for us today. And I want you to notice in this text how, how it speaks to Israel about a future promise of homecoming. Look at what the text says. And a highway will be there. He, he's going to describe a highway that is going to go from Babylon to Zion. And he says this, the, the high will will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. The wicked fools will not go about on it. And there's not going to be any threats on this road. There will be no lion there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those that the Lord has rescued will return. He says, those that God has rescued will return, and they will enter into Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sign will flee away. You know, I, I think to really grapple with and to, to be gripped by, I think, this promise of homecoming, we need to spend a few minutes first talking about the problem of exile. And so for us to kind of wrap our minds and our hearts around this promise of homecoming and how it might address our deep longing for home, we need to talk for a minute about the problem of exile. And I want to make just two simple points about exile from this text. It kind of stands in the background. Number one is this. This text is addressed to Israel while she is in her Babylonian exile. And so... In 597 BC, so 600 years before Christ, the unthinkable happened to the nation of Israel. They were surrounded by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, and he came in and he completely sacked and leveled and burned down the city of Jerusalem, the very city of God. And he, he ransacked the temple. And then he took the people of Israel and he took them back into Babylon so that they could be his captors and his servants there in a faraway land. And the children of Israel at this time, it, it, you, it's hard to put into words just how incredibly devastating this would be. I mean, think for a moment if, if, there was, if, if we didn't live in the United States, the most militarily and economically strong nation in the world, imagine you lived in, in a fairly impoverished place, and then the imperial power of the day invaded your land, burned down all of our favorite cities, and killed mothers and fathers, raped sisters, and then took us back to their land to serve as their captors. And this is the nation of Israel. And throughout the, the Old Testament, there are psalms of lament where they're crying out in pain during this time. And one of them is recorded in Psalm 137, and it says this. They're in exile, the psalmist writes, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. They said we remembered home while we were out serving underneath our captors. And they said this, 
There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for us songs. Our tormentors, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? But, but here's the thing, for, for, for Israel, for Israel, exile was not just a national crisis, it was a theological crisis. Because the land of Israel was God's gift to the nation. And the nation of Israel, they were seen as God's covenant people. And now their, their disposed king, who was supposed to be in the line of David, was cut off. And their temple where God dwelt was destroyed. And now the exiles were off in a far-off land, alienated and estranged from the life they knew, from the presence of God they cherished, from, from, from the land, God's special gift to them. For their very reason for existence, they were just cut off and alienated. And I think what made matters worse for them as they sat in exile is they knew that they had brought this upon themselves. They knew that exile wasn't just the result of the imperial aspirations of violent Nebuchadnezzar. They knew that they had, in some sense, through their idolatry, through their years of rank injustice and their neglect of the poor, that they had brought this upon themselves. They had turned their back on God, and therefore they were exiled. They were sent away from God's land. And so in the background of this promise of homecoming sits this context of exile, Israel and Babylonian exile. Israel cast off, sent out and away from God's promised land, the special place that he had given them to live. But the second thing we need to notice about the background of this text, and the second thing we need to notice about the promise of homecoming, if we're really gonna have it like seep in our own hearts, is you need to recognize that in the biblical imagination, exile is not just an Israel problem, exile is a human problem. You know, the first human couple was exiled from the garden, and we have been living in exile ever since. You know, long before Israel was exiled from the promised land, that first human couple was cast out from the garden. You know, God created us in the beginning to live in a home that was good. The Garden of Eden, Eden meant paradise or beautiful place. God created you and me to inhabit and to indwell paradise, that beautiful place. And what was life like in Eden? Well, the man and the woman, the original humans, were at home with themselves. They were not hiding. They did not feel naked and estranged. They were, they, they were not alienated from themselves. They were comfortable within themselves. And there was harmony in their relationships. And they walked with God in the cool of the garden. And yet, like Israel, who would follow them, that first couple turned their back on God, and they were sent out in exile from the garden. And we have been living under the dark shadow of exile ever since. Exile is not just Israel's condition. Exile is, the tr is our true condition. 
You know, we were made for wholeness. You were made to have rich and vibrant and safe and secure relationships, and yet those have been lost. Our relationships are oftentimes fraught with mistrust and betrayal and hurt and pain. You know, you were made to feel safe and secure in the infinite and the eternal love of God. And yet so many of us live our days feeling anxious and, and, and awkward and, and estranged and alienated from, from ourselves, uncomfortable with what we see when we look in the mirror. We were created to have bodies that were whole, that could dance and sing and never grow old and sick. And yet our bodies oftentimes feel at odds with, with what we long for and what we pursue in life. They seem to be fighting against us. You know, we live in a world where we are estranged and alienated and homeless and homesick. This is the human condition. You know, and if you will stop and you will listen you will hear the echoes of exile everywhere. You know, it's there in the philosophers. You know, Marx and Heidegger and uh, the existentialist Camus and Sartre, they, 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 they defined, they, they named the human condition, the problem of the human condition as a problem of alienation. And they kind of reached for, for what that alienation meant. You know, Marx talked about being alienated from the end of our work and from our employers. And, 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 and Camus and, and, and Sartre talked about being alienated from ourselves and from the world. And Kierkegaard talked about being alienated and estranged from God. But they said, it's part of the human condition. It's what we experience. And so it's there in the philosophers. But it's not just there in the philosophers. It's there in the movies. You know, there are so many films that carry that narrative about the journey back home. You know, one of uh, uh, the, the top 10 movies during Christmas is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I don't know if any of you have seen that. What is that movie about? It's a movie about a journey back home, but it's a tragic story because the main character never actually has a home to go back to. And of course, what's that, that iconic classic, The Wizard of Oz, back about? It's about a journey home, you know? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And of course, it's there in Toy Story. What are they seeking but a place to belong where they can be loved? You know, and it's even there in, um, it's even there in The Walking Dead, you know, the TV series about zombies, now, I'm not recommending The Walking Dead. If you watch that, that's on you, not me. But I did read an article about it a few years back, and it said, you know, The Walking Dead isn't about zombies. It's about alienation. It's about a sense of estrangement from, from, from ourselves and from others. And so it's there in the philosophers. It's there in the movies. And, of course, it's there in our music. You know, uh, the Lumineers' endearing classic, you know, one of my favorite bands, the Lumineers, their enduring classic, Oh Hey, the lead singer says sarcastically, so show me family and all the blood that I would bleed. I don't know where I belong, he says. I don't know where I went wrong. You know, it, it's, it's there in, uh, you know, Taylor Swift's song uh, on her, on her I, I think her best album, Folklore. 
in her song called Exile. The song goes like this. I've seen this film before. I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore, so what am I pretending now? You are my town. Now I'm in exile, seeking, seeing you out. The, this sense, I'm, I'm alienated. I'm estranged from relationships, and I'm estranged from myself. And, and, and it's there in the music. It's there in the philosophers. It's there, it's there in the films. It's there in your own heart, if you will pay attention, isn't it? Isn't there, isn't there a part of you that just feels like even in the best of relationships, even in the best of situations, you feel like there's, there's still an ache. You're not fully satiated. You're not fully satisfied. You're, you're, you're feeling like there's something more that you're longing for. You know, what is that? What is that deep, deep longing for home inside of our hearts? Or put it like this, you know, if, 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 if it's true that we are simply highly evolved bags of molecules, that we are what Bertrand Russell once called simply an accidental collocation of atoms, then why this longing for a different home? Why this deep longing to belong and to be loved in an infinite way to have bodies that don't grow decrepit and old and die, if, 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 if all there is is matter and nothing more and what is just is, then why this, this ache for something more? And, and listen, let me, just, let me just press this on you a little bit. If you're exploring Christianity, I mean, why, why I mean, I, if I've nicked the corner of even a little bit of the ache and the longing of your heart for transcendence for something more, let me just ask you, where does that come from? What is that? And listen, there, there's only two answers. You know, one answer is that it's simply a phantom of the brain. It's a neurotic fancy. You know, it's simply a glitch in our biology. You know, something like you think you're made for something more, but you're really not. It's just a glitch. And so maybe it's a phantom, a neurotic fancy, but the second option is that it is indeed the truest index of our real condition. I remember uh, several years back, I took a course on C.S. Lewis, and I immersed myself in all kinds of, uh, of, of, of his books. And, and um, some of you may not know this, but before Lewis wrote his, uh, his classic Chronicles of Narnia, he, 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 he was an academic genius teaching at Oxford in the arenas of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, of ancient poetry and mythology. And he didn't become a Christian until his late 20s. And, um, and there's a book he has called Surprised by Joy where he processes his own story. And he shares a little bit about his life in his early 20s. And he fought in the trenches of World, War, of World War I and just saw immense tragedy and pain. And, um, and, and he's reflecting back on, on, this, on this dichotomy inside of him, this love he had for myth and fantasy and the grim realities of war. And he writes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he writes this. He said, nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary and nearly all I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. And that's one option. It could be that all you long for, 
fullness, to belong, to experience infinite love, life that never ends, relationships that are never cut off through the pain of death. Like that could simply be a neurotic fancy. But later, after his conversion to Christianity, after being convinced by his friend Tolkien that Christianity was actually the only true myth, in a sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory, he said this. He said, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. In other words, you were made for a different world. You were made to inhabit a reality where you are known all the way down and loved. You were made for relationships that were not fractured and broken by deception and, and, and by, by betrayals and by pain, but marked out by honesty and authenticity and, and, and deep, deep loyalty. You, you were made for bodies that don't grow old. You were made for an infinite love, an infinite beauty, an infinite delight. You were made for a different world. And listen, here is the good news of this text. This text is a declaration to us through the ancient prophet Isaiah that God intends to bring you home that God intends to bring you back to your true home. And I want you to see that in this text that that involves the personal presence of God actually coming to you. You know, it's interesting, at the end of the text, I read it to you at the beginning of the sermon, it speaks about the children of Israel coming from Babylon to Zion back home. It speaks of them coming back. But as the in an earlier part of the text, it speaks of another coming. And it's not of a coming of Israel back to Zion. It's a coming of God to be with his people. And listen to what it says. It says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Why? Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come and save you. He says, here is the good news of this text. God has come to be with his people. This is the promise of God's homecoming, to be with his people. And, and, notice, and notice when the presence of God returns, it will mean wholeness and, and renewal and restoration. He says this, and then when the presence of God returns, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. No longer will you feel alienated from the capacities of your body, but all will be renewed. And in creation itself, there will be cosmic renewal. Water will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams in the desert, burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty, bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. He's speaking of a time when the presence of God will bring fertility and abundance and life as it was already 
It was always meant to be lived, and yet at the very heart of it is the personal presence of God right in the midst of his people. In other words, home in this text is highly relational. You know, and here's what I want you to consider. Is it possible that underneath all of your longings for love and belonging and safety and warmth and home, if you scratch below the surface of all of those longings, is it possible that you might find a longing for God? That that feeling of estrangement and alienation is met not in any human source, but ultimately in God. In other words, that God himself is home. You know, home, home is a personal concept, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I've gone back to my house where I grew up at 3109 Steve Lee in Long Beach, California. And I could go through that house and I could show you the bedroom that I shared with my brother. I, I could go into the closet where their games were that it smelled like, you know, mothballs. Um, I, I could go, I, I could show you the backyard and you could see the pool. But, but, you know, none of that equates to home. Home was always the people I was with, right? And that's home in its essence. Home is with. It is, it is presence. You know, and, and isn't, this, isn't this what, uh, what, what Dory knew? Remember in Finding Nemo, there's that great scene where Marlon is about ready to swim off because he's had enough with Dory and her obnoxious kind of forgetfulness. And, 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 and she's just desperate, clinging to, to Marlon. She says, wait, don't go. And then she exclaims, because when I am with you, I'm home. You know, it reminds me of that, uh, the song, you know, Edward Sharps and the Magnetic Zeros, home, home is wherever I'm with you. Home is with. And according to the biblical text, home is to be with the personal presence of God. You know, home, home is, is, is to be in the very life of the infinite and eternal God. You know, Psalm 90 says that God is our dwelling place. Isaac Watts in a famous hymn named God our eternal home. And St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or as Frederick Buechner writes in his book, Longing for Home, he describes a sermon he was listening to. He said this, it was toward the middle of December, I think, that George Bretrick said something in a sermon that has always stayed with me. He said that on a previous Sunday, he was, as he was leaving church to go back to the apartment where he lived, he happened to overhear somebody on the steps asking somebody else, are you going home for Christmas? And I can almost see Buttrick with his glasses glittering in the, eastern, in the lectern light as he peered out on those who listened to him in that large dim sanctuary and he asked it again, are you going home for Christmas? And he asked it in some sort of way that brought tears to my eyes and made it almost unnecessary for him to move on to his answer to the question, which was that home finally is the manger in Bethlehem, the place where at midnight even the oxen kneel. 
You know, your longing for home is ultimately met in the true and the living God. You know, I was, I was talking to a friend this week, and he shared with me, I was talking to him about this sermon, and he shared with me how when the bottom fell out in his life, and the marriage fell apart, and the home that he poured blood, sweat, and tears in was going to be no more, he said the thing that brought him solace and comfort was the idea that God ultimately is his home. And listen, you know, your longing will only finally be met. This longing for home will only finally and ultimately be met in the living God. You know, when Isaiah pinned this prophecy, he had no idea when he spoke these words about God coming in vengeance to save his people. He had no idea what it would look like and what it would take for God to come and ultimately bring his people back home. He had no idea that God would come in vengeance, embodied in Jesus, coming in vengeance, driving out the powers of darkness that had wreaked havoc on his creation. He would come in saving power, healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And he would ultimately come himself to leave his home, his eternal home, the the eternal son who was with the father, left his eternal home and went on a far and a long journey into exile, going into the deep darkness of God-forsakenness of exile as he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here on the cross of Jesus, God himself entering into the dark night of exile so that he can bring all exiles, all those who have been alienated and estranged back home to the Father. You know, I don't know where you're at today, but the good news, the incredibly breathtaking good news of Christmas is that God has come among us to bring you back home so that you can start this journey of healing and restoration so that you can know even in this life, though you live with unmet longings and unmet desires and disappointments, that ultimately it is no neurotic fancy. One day those desires, those longings will be met and fully satiated when the kingdom of God that was inaugurated in Jesus finally breaks out in all of creation, finally all of those longings and all of those hopes will finally be realized and met. But maybe you're here today and you don't know anything of that hope. You don't know, you, you, you just thought maybe, you know, Christianity, was, the, the problem, you know, is that people break rules and they're bad, you know. Listen, the problem is far deeper than that. We are estranged and alienated from the true and living God. And the good news is far better than simply a message of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and try to be a little bit better person. It is that God has come to save and to bring you home. And so I just wanna invite you, if you have never made a commitment to Jesus, if you have never surrendered your life to God, today could be the day where you let go and you open up and you welcome God into your life And you hear those words from God saying, welcome 
back home. Welcome home. Come home. Come home to God. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're here and you, you've, you've made a commitment to Christ, you know Jesus, but, but you just feel like you've been wandering in the abyss of despair, of your unmet longings. God says, come home again to hope. Come home to, to trust that, that what you're experiencing right now is not all there is. That God has come into this world ultimately to bring you home.